Hey, Corey, I've got a number for you. All right, let's have it. 97.15. I know that. That is the probability of many interesting podcasts next year. Uh, that's, uh, that's a good guess, but I would take the high side on that one because uh, given the great guests we're able to get, I think that we might need, be near 100% that we're going to have some. So uh, it's actually the apartment occupancy reported by RealPage in Q3 2021. And that's interesting because it's the highest ever reported. Wow, that means the, the apartment market is really tight right now. And clearly affordability for renters shifts when the market is like this. Uh, absolutely. Uh, the high occupancy is going to put upward pressure on rents. And that certainly is uh, something that's uh, impacting renters. Uh, the rents are growing at a record pace. And we're going to talk about that and more as we go through and look at how uh, the past year finished and, uh, and what we can look to in the year ahead. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. I'm Corey Aber. And I'm Steve Guggenmoss. Today on the show, our colleague Sarah Hoffman joins us again to speak about our outlook for the multifamily market for 2022. In what continues to be a rapidly changing macroeconomic and housing market, the, the outlook brings together the important indicators to get a view into current conditions in the multifamily rental market. Sarah leads the work on the outlook, so it's great to have her here to walk us through and uh, provide us some insights. Thanks for being here, Sarah. Great to be back. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so I guess maybe uh, just start from the top. And uh, and there's obviously been so so many things moving quickly, whether it's the economy or the or the housing market or multifamily. So maybe you can just uh, give us an overall flavor. Sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's so hard. Where to start? There's just been so much going on in the past year. Uh, but I think to, to really get a full view of it, let's start with kind of seeing what happened in, in 2020. The main theme there is just record breaking for multifamily fundamentals. We saw record break breaking rent growth in 2021, um, as well as some of the strongest occupancy levels that we've seen uh, going back to the history of data, which is kind of, you know, 1990s and 1980s. Uh, so it was just a really robust year for demand. And I think what's really important is when we talk about just how strong demand was in the multifamily market, it's not because supply was lacking. Um, while it's always hard to say, like, what would have happened if the pandemic didn't hit uh, regarding the, the total completions level, uh, we definitely don't see that they took a dip um, in the past year or even in 2020. Completions continued to rise and they're still expected to be really strong going forward, just given the permits and the start pipeline. Uh, but what we definitely don't see was uh, completions dropping off to, to boost that strong fundamentals. Um, completions were there. New supply was entering the market. Demand was just so strong uh, the past year uh, that it eclipsed those new completions to give us really strong fundamentals for 2021. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, I mean, it's so great to look back and be able to say that because I know, um, you know, if we look back, you know, beyond 2021, back into 2020, just the, the idea of, of even getting properties delivered, right? So yes, there is supply, but, uh, but it's in some ways nice that that supply could be delivered because it shows that the economy was working at some level. And then to think that the units are being filled up so quickly and that's, you know, flowing through to the market overall. How about, obviously, I think that as, as we look at conditions and we look, you know, we do this every six months or so, we kind of look at what we were forecasting, um, what we got right, what we, what we didn't know about. Can you speak a little bit about, you know, as we've looked back on what we've seen since the last time we've talked, how things are different than we expected? 
Sure. Yeah. Back in the summer when we did our, our mid-year outlook, um, that was really when we we're starting to kind of see signs of the apartment market recovery. Um, we started to see in that second quarter uh, rents turn. Rents really kind of bottomed out at the beginning of the year for most markets and nationally. So they started to turn in the second quarter. Um, but it was really that third quarter and even into the fall months of September, October that we really saw that rent growth uh, skyrocket as much as it did. Um, so maybe kind of, uh, you know, looking back, to say what was missed. Um, I think the the vaccine rollout really came a lot faster through the spring and into the summer months. People started getting back to life or you know, back to normal life. Um, what what we can say is normal these days. Um, but, you know, just kind of the going out so that brought back kind of the demand for those close amenities, uh, pr- close proximity to uh, the city life, people who uh, you know, maybe moved temporarily during the onset of the pandemic, uh, you know, started kind of moving back to, to where they were or maybe mo- forming new households. We did lose kind of one whole college age cohort. And then in the summer got that second one. That's a big ramp up in household formations. Once they leave college, move to a new job, uh, then, you know, they start a new household, whether it's renting or ownership or with roommates. And we didn't really see that last year. So we got last year's and this year's college cohort kind of moving in. At the same time, people, uh, you know, at the start of the pandemic, everyone really kind of got concerned. Was this going to be the death of big cities? Are people just going to be able to remote work wherever they want, move far away from the cities? And while some people probably did have that idyllic lifestyle of moving out to the country and being able to, uh, you know, VPN into their jobs, what we also found was more people actually just kind of moved to different cities. Um, So while your job might have been based in Chicago, you wanted to get a hand or you wanted to try living in, in California. So you wanted the sunny lifestyle while you could keep your job from Chicago based or New York based. So it was um, a lot more of shuffling of cities, um, not so much as people just all out leaving cities. Um, You know, so I think that was one of the big surprises is uh, people didn't just leave the cities to never come back. um, And some people decided to move to different cities. Um, So it's going to be real interesting how those trends continue. Um, with people now returning to work, how um, uh, so now as people return to work, um, it's going to be interesting to see how those play out um, if flexible work arrangements persist or if uh, over time they eventually kind of uh, bring people back to their location of work um, and unable to kind of move around the country more. Yeah, and I think that uh, um Earlier, I think there were a lot of discussions around, like you say, with with the nature of work changing, with uh, with concerns of being in downtown areas and the density that comes with that. You know, would there be changes there? And uh, and I know that um, Corey and I had uh, Hyo Jung Lee on, and he talks about sometimes you know it's not an either or, and it can be a both and. And and I think that even in the uh, recent real page data, when they looked at kind of urban. Uh, versus um, suburban um, rental market performance, and they looked at income on applications. I think income on rental applications were, was up nearly 15% in their data for both urban and and suburban. And so certainly the apartment buildings in both are, are filling up, um, and it could be driven by any number of factors. And, uh, and it seems like there's uh, support for, for pretty decent property operations. Um, and, uh, and so, that kind of raises the question, though, is there's there's always been uh, kind of the underlying concern of, you know, are buildings getting um, the rent collections that they expect uh, as as people are um, 
some some households are struggling to pay the rent, um, needing um, rental support. Um, are 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 the property operators um, getting paid, and what what do rent collections look like? Can you walk us through what's been happening with that? Yeah, and I think actually I want to make a point as you uh, mentioned with a uh, total or with incomes uh, going up at new lease signings in both like suburban and the urban. Um, before I forget, I kind of want to comment that that's also a good indicator that uh, we're also seeing just the overall tight supply of housing, um, and so a lot of people are choosing or you know have to rent because there's that shortage of single family housing, which is leading to the overall tight. Uh, tight housing supply uh, that's also driving up not only single family prices, but also the multifamily prices. I think that's a great point that we kind of see in that data. Um, typically, higher incomes tend to go towards single family ownership. Uh, but in this day, you know, we're kind of seeing that across the board that with, with low inventory, um, it's still pushing people, uh, you know, towards rental housing. But yeah, back to, to the collections question, um, that's been interesting to see play out over the summer months. Um, as you know, the NMHC had been uh, reporting on rent collections um, among about 11.5 million properties um, or units, sorry, 11.5 million units. Um, and uh, they started reporting on it at the onset of the pandemic. Uh, and in the summer months, we actually saw that rate of collections trend down. Um, they're still relatively high by month end. We're talking kind of the, the mid to low. 90s, um, but that's a couple percentage points below what they were last year um, and still trailing what they were pre-pandemic in 2019. Uh, and so there's a few things that we can kind of mention to, uh, to kind of talk through that. One, the enhanced unemployment benefits uh, did officially run out at the very beginning of September, although some states started to uh, stop them earlier in the summer. Um, and so those enhanced unemployment benefits uh, kind of gave, uh, gave more money to people, um, extended unemployment benefits who had been laid off throughout the, the pandemic. Uh, and as those wrapped up, that's uh, that kind of corresponds with when we started to see that dip in the collections there. Um, on a property level basis, Basis, though, the increase in rents that we've been seeing throughout the summer, while that could kind of also uh, play into collections rate, if your rent's going up faster than you can make it, at uh, the property level, the increase in those rents um, kind of definitely offsets any loss, uh, those slight losses in collections. So when you kind of look at it um, on our debt lending side view here at Freddie, that's, uh, you know, that, that collections uh, decline isn't really anything to get too concerned about. But then on the, uh, the flip side, what we really have to talk about is, you know, it's important to keep tenants in their properties or are in their units. So to keep tenants in their units um, and if they're having a hard time paying at the collection rate, uh, uh, um, at that collection rate uh, signifies, then we have to kind of look towards like what's income growth coming in for those tenants. Um, and as we've talked and um, probably talk a little later, the increase uh, that we're seeing in inflation rate uh, should hopefully start uh, being felt by workers with increases in rage wages to help offset some of that increase in the rent growth. We do know that inflation is not uh, kind of an equal distribution across the income spectrum. Uh, so there's definitely uh, going to be some bias towards higher incomes, possibly feeling that wage growth a little bit more. But in general, with this higher inflation should come higher wages, which will then help in that uh, in that rent collection data. That's a good point. And I think that, uh, you know, inflation is certainly getting mentioned more and more. And, uh, and I think that the, 
the word transitory is being seen a little bit less and less. And so uh, I think that maybe the economic indicators will, will true up to um, what people are feeling in terms of things certainly are going up. And if rents go up, that's certainly a very big part, uh, whether it's rents, I guess, or, or a single family ownership. Um, it's a big part of people's spending. And, uh, and if that's going up, that probably indicates that there's going to be some inflation. And, uh, and as you said, uh, you know, I think that uh, one area of concern as we think about things in the future is that uh, while uh, the balance between rents and inflation can maybe turn into uh, fairly decent you know, operations um, in terms of uh, apartment market performance, um, but as we always are concerned about affordability, if it is hitting those people at the lower end of the wage spectrum harder uh, than others, then that is an exposure that we'll need to continue to watch. And certainly that is something that we will continue to do. Um, I think that the, the folks that say that there may not be inflation are becoming less and less, but I think that the consumer sentiment surveys are the ones that, that are, that's an, another area where things are, are looking relatively negative when, many, when so many things in the economy are looking positive. So those are a couple of things that I think that we probably need to continue to watch. Um, but overall, I think that um, the, 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 the biggest factors are that we're seeing are, are many things that are pointing to uh, a fair amount of good health in the, in the economy and in the uh, housing market. So. Um, I wonder if we could maybe circle back to think about what 2022 looks looks like for us in terms of the rental market. Yeah, I think 2022 is looking to cool slightly from these record-breaking uh, metrics that we've seen in 2021, um, but still see relatively strong growth. Um, overall, we expect rents to be above kind of the long-run average, um, and we actually expect vacancies to remain relatively tight despite a lot of new supply still entering the market. So we still expect the demand to be there. It's not kind of like a one-and-done. There's a lot of concerns sometimes that – when concessions, um, you know, drop, that gets people in, but then they just move out once they, uh, once those concessions burn off. Um, and while you do see some, uh, you know, sometimes you see that pattern happen, it's usually not enough to really drive the fundamentals uh, too too drastically. Uh, and so we think that with, um, you know, the continued demand for housing the continued supply shortage of all housing types, the increase uh, in single-family home prices despite relatively lower rates. Um, although, Steve, to your point, with uh, inflation becoming more and more concern, we think that you know uh, rates could you know slowly increase then to, to even keep single-family housing more unaffordable or more unattainable. Um, but so with the strong demand, uh, tight supply, uh, expect to see a strong, uh, strong multifamily fundamentals continue into 2022. Um, but uh, I, I would say um, I'm less optimistic of seeing double digit rent growth like we did for 2021. So as, as we think about you know, some of these trends that, that uh, we, we might expect in, in 2022, those build off of some things that you've noticed a lot in the last you know, three to six months in, in 2021 as well, right? Yeah, so we saw really strong rent growth um, pretty much take part in the third quarter and into the fall months of 2021. Uh, that uh, that growth, record-shattering, um, you know, upwards of 10% um, 
uh, possibly more across the nation. That's at the national level, 10%. Um, meanwhile, occupancy, um, as we mentioned at the beginning uh, with Steve's number, uh, you know, at a very strong over 97%. Um, and I believe that's still kind of going up in these winter months or the fourth quarter, which typically sees that slow down some. Uh, so that just talks to the really robust nature of the multifamily market. Um, uh, and and um, I think what's also really important to talk about is um, when we think about last year, when we saw that negative rent growth overall, um, that was really um, only in a select number of metros uh, that really brought down the whole national average rent growth. Um, several metro, many, actually most metros still saw relatively uh, you know, positive or even like four or 5% rent growth last year during the pandemic. But as we know, the gateway markets that were hit the hardest really drove down that negative uh, rent growth nationally. This time, this year, that growth is actually almost pretty equally distributed across metros. Um, it's not just a few metros really driving up that double-digit rent growth nationally. We actually see it across um, a, a large number of metros. Now, the New York, San Francisco's, those gateway metros have more of a hole than to dig out of. Um, it may not quite be back to their pre-pandemic levels this year, but I'll say they're much closer than we thought they would have been at the beginning of this year. We thought it would be a couple years for them to kind of dig out of that hole, but they've seen some really strong growth during that third quarter of this past year to help kind of propel them up and get them much closer to that pre-pandemic level. So outside of the gateway markets, are, are you seeing any other markets where maybe uh, you know some, some trends are emerging or being reinforced, maybe rent growth going up higher than you might expect or income growth growing up higher than you might expect? Yeah, so I think when we kind of look at our, our top 10 metros, uh, the story hasn't shifted too much um, from what we've been seeing the past couple of uh, years with, it's really the Sunbelt metros that are driving a lot of growth. Um, now that's kind of smattered and we have seen uh, the Florida markets start to kind of materialize in that top 10 list. Uh, so we're definitely seeing a lot more strength in Florida um, as well as kind of the, we call it Mountain West. So the, the Salt Lake City um, and then even towards, you know, Sacramento, kind of the the inland California markets of, uh, you know, Sacramento or Riverside, uh, definitely seen a lot of strong growth, which which has kind of been typical the past few years. Um, but we're starting to see also some of those smaller markets kind of make their way up on the list, like the Albuquerque's, uh, Memphis was on our list uh, at the mid-year outlook. And while it didn't make our top 10, this uh, this iteration, it's it's pretty close. It's still, it's a, a top contender there for top run growth. Uh, so we're starting to see some of those smaller Metros. And that follows the patterns of what we saw during the pandemic when people moved from the larger gateway cities to those, uh, you know, smaller, more affordable areas. Um, that's where you're starting to see that that rent growth really drive up. So, so we might, you know, what was the Boise boom before might now be the Albuquerque boom? <laughs> yep. Yeah, you might be seeing more um, Albuquerque people not getting uh, or not making the wrong turn at Albuquerque anymore. They're deciding to stay. So Bugs Bunny will be pleased or maybe not. <laughs> And then if you had to pick out some that are uh, maybe uh, still recovering or, or, or lagging the national average, like anything to highlight there? So we still see the, the gateway metros, like I mentioned, are not quite back to their pre-pandemic, though getting close. So the San Francisco, San Jose, New York, um, even Oakland, Boston, D.C. are some of the ones that are seen uh, on the lower side of the rent growth spectrum. Um, but they're still expected to see 
relatively healthy rent growth for 2022. Um, among those other kind of bottom 10 metros, as we call them, uh, are kind of concentrated in the, the New England, uh, the Northeast, uh, and even the Midwest area. But I, I'd like to iterate that, like, just because they're at the bottom doesn't mean that they're going to you know, see no rent growth, uh, they're still going to see relatively uh, decent rent growth um, next year. Um, and especially when you kind of talk about like the bottom 10 list for 20, uh, 2021, uh, when we kind of distributed out 2021 rent growths, the bottom distribution of zero to 5%, only one market fell in that. So when you really kind of think about like what that, that bottom is still relatively strong rent growth of above 5%. Yeah. So to think when the bottom markets are, are performing as well as that uh, and the top are, are performing as well as they are, um, as we circle back to what matters to us, um, what our business is in terms of uh, mortgage fundings, um, what does that look like in terms of the, the our mortgage origination market? One of the big drivers in our origination forecast is property price appreciation. And so when we see that um, is highly corresponded with fundamentals and with the really strong growth we've seen in, in rents and occupancies, then we expect really strong property price appreciation, which we've been seeing throughout 2021. Um, I believe it's up about like 16% over the year of the third quarter um, as reported by RCA. And when that feeds into our origination forecasts, um, we're, we're expecting a very strong 2021 originations up about 25% to $450 billion for this year. Um, and we'll continue to see that go forward into next year. Um, and we could see upwards of $475 billion or even up to $500 billion for 2022. Uh, this is really just brought on by the, the overall robust macroeconomics, as we talked about just the recovery. Uh, we're seeing very strong GDP, very low unemployment rate. Uh, relatively low treasury rates, um, and then the very strong price appreciation really feeding into our forecasts. Um, that being said, kind of as we mentioned with inflation being a, a wild factor and definitely one of concern, how that would impact uh, treasury rates, uh, that could have kind of one of those uh, possible possibilities for a lower outlook on our originations, depending how fast treasury rates move. That's a good point. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a question that, uh, that I get a fair amount as well as, uh, you know, I think that when we think about property pricing, um, it can be, uh, a little bit hard to disentangle whether, whether things are exactly right in the right place, but, uh, um, and, and certainly with the risk of rising treasuries, uh, would that you know increase discount rates and, and lower property prices? I think we've done some work on that recently where, um, you know, we looked at uh, cap rate spreads in at the end of 2019 uh, as to where they are now, and uh, and cap and and then looked at say like triple B spreads on triple B corporate bonds um, and what the spreads were. And I think the corporate bond spread came in pretty meaningfully, maybe 50 basis points, so more aggressive um, valuation, so less of a credit spread um, in in the triple Bs. Whereas the uh, for for multifamily. Um, the cap rate spread was flat across that whole time. So while the while the treasury rate came down a little bit, so cap rates uh, have moved just a little bit. Um, valuations, um, in that sense, you know, and on a relative value, it looks pretty good. And speaking of relative value, when when we compare across different um, commercial real estate property types, um, I think that multifamily has continued to grow in in um, 
in interest. Uh, and so there, I think investors are allocating uh, funds that maybe used to be an office or, or hotel and moving them over to multifamily. And I think that we see the percentage of the commercial real estate sales market flowing into multifamily is, um, is as high as it's been. Um, and so uh, certainly I think there continues to be interest. And, and as you say, if a key driver to the overall origination market is, you know, property prices and, and if those property prices are really solid and, uh, and based on these things and the strong fundamentals that you talked about, it feels like uh, we can have a fair amount of confidence in that origination market forecast and at least moving upward from here. Yeah, and especially with when we saw what happened last year in 2020, despite the the pandemic and the impact that had, the, the origination market was actually relatively flat. Uh, so there was still, as you mentioned, all that strong demand for, for multifamily uh, investments. Um, and even during the recession um, that, that panned out with having only, uh, you know, slight declines in originations last year. Um, so I think that really sets us up for a really robust year this year as well. So speaking of uh, you know robustness this this coming year, one of the areas that we have focused a lot on as a company is providing liquidity to those most affordable units and those units affordable to people making sixty percent of the area median income or less. How do you see that playing out uh, in twenty twenty two? I mean that's definitely a, a tricky subject because uh, as as we know when rents go up faster than income, then that's where affordability really gets squeezed, um, and that's where we start seeing uh, the the affordability crisis that we've uh, all been kind of talking about, knowing about, researching on um, is just going to get worse when when incomes and rents don't grow in tandem, um, and especially with uh, in twenty twenty one this past year that really strong rent growth, um, incomes are not being able to keep up right away. Um, affordability definitely gets squeezed and how that might play into the rent payment tracker information we discussed with the declining rent collections. Um, you know, if rents are just getting too high, too fast. Um, but we do expect that, uh, the inflation will kind of come through. Um, and hopefully then we can kind of see those incomes increase next year. Um, and so that, that will help the, uh, the affordability on paper. When you think that if incomes are going to go up, um, rent growth uh, not as strong, um, so maybe they'll kind of grow in tandem a little, or at least a little bit closer next year. Um, but I mean, that's going to continue to squeeze just the availability of affordable properties, especially with our mission driven at the 60% AMI threshold. Um, and that's a very competitive uh, base. There's a very competitive market um, to be able to support liquidity for that. So it's not just us in that field. It's, it's a lot of different players um, for a shrinking segment of the market. So Sarah, that's really helpful to understand. And you know, one of the points that, that uh, we've brought up a few times in this discussion um, that I'd like to understand a little bit better. So we've talked about um, inflation leading to um, wage growth, which then uh, you know, brings wages up more in line with uh, rent growth. Uh, so maybe evens things out or, or uh, you know, makes things a little bit seem a little bit more favorable there. But I also tend to think of inflation as, you know, to the average person, like maybe problematic, right? It, um, 
cost of goods are going up, cost of living is going up. So how does that uh, factor in here? Can you explain that a little bit further? Yeah, let me start by kind of just talking about that uh, relationship of how when uh, incomes to rents. Um, so as we talked about, when, when rents go up faster than incomes, that's where we squeeze affordability. Um, but when we kind of look at our forecasts uh, for next year, um, specifically when we kind of look at the business we've done um, in those affordability buckets, say the, the less than 60% AM, uh, when we trend looking at projected income growth um, as well as projected rent growth, um, we actually kind of look and uh, we actually have a pretty good feeling that uh, income growth should grow pretty much in line, if not maybe a smidge faster than rent growth next year, um, which will definitely kind of help out that segment. So at that point, you should expect to see maybe incomes growing a bit faster to help those those lower income uh, families be able to make rent payments or have it a little less burdensome. Uh, but as we all know, like that's on paper, that's kind of overall the national look sometimes. So at the individual renter level, that can really have differing impacts. Um, and there definitely can be a little bit more of a squeeze with inflation impacting many other factors um, and that bottom line coming down. So while there might get a little reprieve next year, um, when you just kind of looks at rents versus income, uh, the individual tenant, individual renter um, always is going to face kind of a different story than than we might have seen at the national overview. Yeah, and I think it's 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 really a great question, Corey, because I think that um, you know we as a, as an economy have not seen you know really meaningfully um, uh, growing inflation for for a long time. But I think that uh, a little historical perspective is always helpful, and I think that uh, or or a perspective beyond our own economy, and I think that oftentimes. Um, those at the lower end of the wage spectrum, um, as we talked about a little bit before, but are hit tend to be hit a little bit harder, um, if not more, you know, certainly harder um, uh, than the, you know, broadly thinking about the average or, or above average kind of incomes. So uh, I think as we think about our affordable goals, we need to keep an eye on it. It appears that there's many things that we know about how those are set, um, and and while it that. The, the population of, of affordable rentals continues to drop given the, the long run trends. Um, I think that we'll learn something new this year um, in terms of how inflation plays out uh, together with rents and, and we'll see it at the national level, the metro level, and obviously we care about um, how it plays out at the individual renter level. Now, Sarah and Steve, that's, that's um, such a great discussion and uh, really helps to clear things up a little bit for me. Um, I want to go back to Sarah. You talked about uh, top 10 markets and, and all that. And so as we look ahead, uh, maybe to wrap up our discussion, what are the next top 10 markets? <laughs> all right. Let me let me look at my crystal ball here. Um, you know, I guess uh, one thing I like just to kind of point out is when we do our analysis and looking at all the metros, there's definitely a few that kind of make us, you know, kind of take a second glance, but consistently ones that have been coming up in that list, um, we've been seeing in kind of the North Carolina, especially like the Eastern side, the, the Raleigh, Durham, or even Greensboro area. Um, we've definitely seen uh, a lot stronger growth there. Um, they're typically smaller markets again, kind of like we've talked uh, earlier, just the trend of some of the smaller markets seeing that really strong growth. Um, but I think the I'll have to kind of give my hat off to, to North Carolina for seeing some of the, uh, the surprise markets gets this go around. 
All right. Well, Sarah and and Steve too. Uh, such a great discussion, and uh, you really take some complicated subjects uh, and a lot of variables, and and uh, bring it into something that that uh, makes a lot of sense. And you've simplified a, a lot of things for us, and and given us a good a good view of the market uh, both in twenty twenty one and coming up in twenty twenty two. So, thank you, Sarah. Yep. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure to be here, and happy to talk about the outlook. Yep. Thanks, Sarah. Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast is produced and supported by a team of our Freddie Mac colleagues, including our production manager, Melissa Bosma, editor, Stephanie Heston, and audio producer, Dalton O'Colan. To listen to more and keep up with the latest episodes, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And check our website, mf.freddiemac.com slash research for the full catalog of podcast episodes and original Freddie Mac research.